stand and we'll sing?
chorus with us again. Jesus, faithful word of God. Jesus, faithful word of God, the anchor of my heart. You're everything you say you are, Lord. Greater than my deepest needs, the ground beneath my feet. Your promises won't fail me now. Amen. The splendor of the King, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, let all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide, and trembles at his voice, and trembles at his voice. How great, how great.
God, we do praise you as the name above every other name. And our desire, Lord, is that the world would know you. The world would know you as Lord. The world would know you as creator. The world would know you as savior. God, we're grateful that we get to gather together and with you this morning. We pray that we would see a more clear picture of who you are today, that you would reveal to us the ways that we have a false picture of who you are. And through your word, Lord, we pray that you would restore to us a right view of you, our God. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified through this, this worship, and through the word, through the communion that we take together, and that all this would be done in the name of Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for worshiping together. Please remain standing as the, the word of God is read. Today's reading is from John 1, verses 6 through 18. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Chantel. Morning, Arcadia. Good to see you. Those are some outstanding foreheads out there. I appreciate that. Um, just on that note, um, oh, wow, I, I, I'm up here, so I get to take mine off. Um, we know there's a lot of debate and controversy and different scientific understandings of the whole face covering things, but uh, it does help us if you keep your face coverings on when you're down in the congregational area. It keeps other people comfortable, and it also allows us, if we're, anybody ever comes in uh, who might have something to say about it, it allows us to say that we're following all the protocols that we need to, to in order to be open. Um, uh, some of you know I like Orange Theory. I go once a week. I used to go once a week. I've been dying for Orange Theory to get opened back up so I could go again. And uh, they're opening back up, but you're going to have to wear a mask the whole time you're working out, which is kind of inconvenient. Uh, not a lot of fun, especially when you're on the treadmill. But if I ask myself the question, and I'm not a big mask guy. I really am not. I enjoyed my week in Iowa last month when I never had to put on a mask, it was nice. But um, if I ask myself the question, 
Do I want Orange Theory to be open and available for me or not? Am I willing to wear a mask for that? I'm, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll wear the mask if I can still go to Orange Theory and they can have my $59 a month. So anyway, we just say that as a reminder. Uh, also as a reminder, again, uh, we're kind of at the mercy of technology now. That's the way it is. And we're doing our best with live streaming virtually everything that we are doing, which is good. Uh, we've pivoted and made that decision. We're live streaming both services on Sunday. And at some point, if we have to move to three services, uh, probably live stream all three. We're hoping that maybe by the end of September, we can have some semblance of a children's ministry. Again, all of that is in flux. And if you remember me saying, my favorite thing to say uh, is that this is what we're doing for now. Uh, everything changes uh, constantly. And so what we're doing for now is two services, live stream, no children's ministry, hoping to bring children's ministry online. But we're also live streaming everything that we're doing on Wednesday nights as well. And we've made the decision to start having more uh, content on Wednesday nights. The last two Wednesday nights, uh, we've gotten really good feedback on uh, the, the Schraderisms night and um, the, frankly speaking, in September, coming up in September. Tyler James, our illustrious family pastor, and I are going to do two nights on parenting, which we were going to do a long time ago and then COVID hit, but we're going to do them now. Uh, we're going to have a night, uh, October 7th, Wednesday night, October 7th, where we're going to talk about um, elections, and not in a Reformed theology way, but rather like the political um, reality that we're living in. So we were thinking about titling it, uh, Who You Should Vote For, but we decided to back off of that. And uh, I'm sure it won't be controversial, and everybody will walk out agreeing with everything that we have to say. We're going to have a panel discussion that night, October 14th. I know I'm looking way ahead, but I'm excited about that. We're going to talk about the... Uh, notion of disillusion. And it, this is something that I'm really passionate about because I think it helps if, if you just bear, it's, it's somewhat academic, but if you bear with the 70, minute, 70 minutes or so that I'm going to talk about it, it will help you understand way more about what's going on in our world today. Uh, the, the notion of disillusion is the disconnect that we are experiencing now between words and reality. Uh, that's what disillusion is. And it started with the existential philosophers. Um, it's been uh, brought to light with postmodern uh, philosophy and postmodern worldviews with Stanley Fish and his reader response theory and all of this. And we're going to go through that. Understanding this idea of disillusion will help you to understand more about why there's so much turmoil, discord, and divide in our world today. Uh, and, and I think it will be really helpful. That's on October 14th. Anyway, all of that is recorded and then put on our YouTube channel. We encourage you to uh, be a uh, subscriber to that as well. Uh, that's all I have in terms of kind of warming us up. Let's, um, we're going to look at 6 through 18 today. There's a lot there. You heard Chantel read it, verses 6 through 18 in John chapter 1. I encourage you to turn there, and as you do, I'll pray. Uh, Lord God, again, as we open your word, we pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to everything that you have to say, to the great revelation that we see in these 13 verses. I pray that you would um, open our eyes to see that revelation, to see the wisdom, to see the truth, to see the grace, to see the glory, all of those things that are embedded in this passage. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Prolegomenon. I still can't say it. Prolegomenon. Anyway. The English word is prologue. <laughs> Taken together, the first 18 verses of John in chapter 1 are the prologue to everything that happens. And we've, we've looked at 
verses 1 through 5. Today we're going to look at the next 13, 6 through 18. And taken as a whole, these 18 verses, John the Apostle, who writes this gospel, makes it absolutely clear, he's unequivocal about this, that Jesus is eternal, he is preexistent, he is incarnate, and he's the creator. That can only mean one thing. Jesus is God. He's presenting us with this understanding, this revelation, that Jesus is who he claims to be, God, Messiah, Savior. It simply cannot mean anything else. You, you cannot read these 18 verses and with any intellectual honesty whatsoever come away with this notion that Jesus was just a good teacher. There's way more going on here than that. And as I said, we looked at the first five verses a couple of weeks ago. We take on the rest of it today, and there's a lot there. And what I want to do today is I've divided it up into three different sections, 6 through 8, 9 through 13, and 14 through 18. We're going to unpack each of those, uh, try to find some application for each of us in each of those, and then at the very end, I'm going to come back to that middle paragraph, 9 through 13, and one, make one last gospel application. So as we do that, I want to read each paragraph, reread each paragraph so that we have it fully in front of us. So six through eight, John the apostle writes, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. John is not writing autobiographically here. Um, it's very confusing sometimes to people that there are these two Johns. There's John the apostle who writes the gospel to John, and then there's John the Baptist who is the forerunner of Jesus, the herald of Jesus, the one who trumpets his coming, the harbinger of Jesus, the one who is testifying to the fact that the Messiah is coming. That's who he's talking about here. In these three verses, we are having John the Baptist revealed to us, which comes before the revelation of the Messiah. So there was this man, John the Baptist, sent from God. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him, through the light, through Jesus. He, John the Baptist, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. I'm going to say this three or four times today. John the Baptist's sole purpose in ministry was to testify to Jesus and to point people to Jesus. That's it. John the Baptist was all about Jesus. All about Jesus, which is exactly the way we should be as well. So these verses are the witness to the light. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the light in verse 5, how the light shines in the darkness. Jesus brings his truth and grace to the darkness of sin and corruption in this world, and the darkness flees. The darkness cannot comp comprehend it. The darkness cannot handle it. True light brings revelation. It brings life. It brings energy. Have you ever walked into a room, turned on the light, and the light turns on, but the darkness stays. Have you ever had that happen? No, of course not. The darkness cannot stay when there's light. The darkness cannot comprehend the light. The darkness flees when the light comes. And this is what we're being told about the light. Now, this witness to the light, John the Baptist, again, it's not John the Apostle, the Bible writer. It's John talking about John. And of course, many people think about 
Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 when they read these verses. Malachi was the last prophet before God entered his 400 years of silence, supposedly, between Malachi and Matthew in the Bible. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, God says this, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. People now look at this and say this is a reference to John the Baptist and this is the chronology that God himself has set up for the Messiah. There's going to be a herald first, a trumpeter first, and then the Messiah will come. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John is this herald. He's the messenger, the trumpet blower. He's the witness to the truth, and he is pointing to the one. In Luke, Luke chapters 1 and first part of chapter 2, we have... Elizabeth and Mary, who are cousins, both with these amazing pregnancies. And by the way, we just decided as a, as a staff that for Advent this year, we're going to do Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through the middle of Luke chapter 2. We're going to tell that whole story over five different Advent messages, including Christmas Eve, because it, it would just go so well with what's going on in the Gospel of John, and it's also a beautiful story. These are two miraculous pregnancies with very different results, but both are good results, and both are purposed results that God had purposed for his salvation for us. One son is Elizabeth's son. He's the prophet. He's the herald, the voice in the wilderness calling our attention to something greater. That's John the Baptist. Elizabeth's son is born probably six months before Jesus is born. Now, Mary and Elizabeth are cousins, so I guess I, I don't really fully understand this, but I think that makes John the Baptist and Jesus second cousins. Is that right? Something like that. In any, in any event, they're related to each other. But then the other son is Mary's son, and he's the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. Now, this brings up, in my mind... A tiny little elephant that often wanders into the room, not only then, it happened then, but it happens a lot today, especially, unfortunately, in American Christianity. And I want to talk about it. Too many times, the one who witnesses to the light becomes the light. Too often, in our church world today, especially in America, the one who is witnessing to the light becomes the light for people. And that happens because people like to put the one witnessing to the light on a pedestal because he's a great communicator or whatever it is. He's got charisma. He's energetic. He's, he says things in a way that nobody's ever heard people say it before. He can unpack the scriptures in such a way it just makes them dance and I can understand it like I've never understood it before. And we begin to put the messenger on the pedestal and make him the light. Unfortunately, often those messengers who have that happen to them, they kind of like it. And they give you that false humility and aw shucks, but they really like being the light too. And that presents all kinds of problems. They enjoy being the one, but this is a recipe for destruction and frustration. Here's the question you and I need to ask ourselves, and John the Baptist is a wonderful example of this in his ministry. Are we following Jesus, or are we following a personality? Because I guarantee you, if you're following a personality, that personality is eventually going to let you down. The personality is going to do something wrong. The personality is sinful and has flaws, 
and issues. The personality is going to retire or is going to, is going to move on to something else that's more lucrative or going to decide that they want to write books and not pastor a church. The, the personality is not the savior. The personality is not the light. The personality is supposed to be pointing everybody, including himself, to the light. That's the job of every witness of Jesus. Only Jesus has the job of Savior. That is it. We do this because we're such consumers. We are. We confuse the church with Nordstrom's or Zinberger or wherever else that we have all these pleasurable needs and wants met. But the church isn't a consumer product. Jesus is not a consumer product. We need to understand that it's different. We shouldn't be consumers. We should be servers and worshipers. It's fine to be consumers as long as you're in Nordstrom's or shopping online at Amazon or in Zinberger, but it's not fine in the church. It's not good for the faith community. John is very careful to make sure people understand the herald is not the savior. Don't expect the herald to be the savior. Don't expect him to do things that he, for you that he cannot do. John the Baptist's ministry was one thing. Testifying to the Messiah and pointing us to the Messiah. That's it. And then you look at verses 9 through 13, the middle paragraph, which is a challenging paragraph. Now, so what John does in 6 through 8 is he reveals to us who John the Baptist is, and now Jesus is going to be revealed to us. Now, this revelation continues throughout the gospel, for sure, but we begin to have this revelation here. The true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his kin, the Jewish people, God's chosen ones, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born again, not because we're talked into it, not because of somebody's will, not because of our will. We are born again because of the will of God. God saves sinners. Now in verse 9, I think the key word is true. He's the true light. Again, think about verse 5 and what light does. We need to understand there are many false lights out there. There are many things that put on themselves as light. But the irony is that false lights are ultimately darkness. And that's why false teachers or heretics or antichrists, remember when we went through 1 John and we talked about the antichrists, the false teachers, the heretics, they cannot remain. They cannot abide. The minute Jesus shows up, the minute the word of God shows up to a false teacher or an antichrist or a heretic, the only response is that they have to leave. They can't abide in the truth. And the true light always exposes the false light. Jesus always exposed the false light. And then you look in the middle of this middle paragraph. Jesus is being rejected. And really, he's actually in pretty good company here. How often did the Jews in the Old Testament reject the prophets when they would come with their, thus saith the Lord's? They rejected the prophets all the time. God would even tell the prophets when he would call them, he'd say, 
you need to understand that you're being called to misery and suffering. <laughs> They're going to reject you. They're going to hate you. They're going to throw you in wells and do other stuff to you. They're going to want to kill you. So he's in, he's in good company. The problem, of course, though, is that Jesus is not just another prophet of God. He's the long-awaited for Messiah. He's the Christ, the anointed one that the Jews have been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. He's king. He's the judge. Jesus was exactly what his own, the Jews, wanted and needed, and yet they rejected him. I will say, not only from my own experience, but from the experience of talking to others, one of the biggest challenges we have is that most of us don't realize that exactly what we need and exactly what we want is usually right in front of us. It's very obvious, but we miss it. We just miss it. We miss how blessed we are. We, missed how, we miss how rich we are. We struggle with this. We're so silly about this stuff. Now, many of you know I love hockey, and occasionally I just can't help myself. I have to have a hockey illustration to demonstrate how wonderful the gospel is, and you're going to have to suffer through one right now, okay? Um, in 1980, something really special happened. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Miracle on Ice. I was alive then. Those of you who are shaking your head that you don't know, okay, you have, you've got to. This was the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of sports. The United States hockey team, a bunch of 20-year-old kids beat the Soviet hockey team, a bunch of men who were the best in the world. They beat them in the semifinals in the Olympics and then went on and won the finals and won the gold medal in 1980. Literally, people called it a miracle. I, I remember watching the game uh, as, it, as it was being played, and Al Michaels was calling that last minute, and just the excitement, it was unbelievable when they beat the, uh, the Russians, and, and Al Michaels at the end, he says, do you believe in miracles? Yes! And I, it, was just, it was just the greatest moment in uh, sports. And, and that team was really actually, for the United States, was pretty amazing. Virtually every one of those 20 players on that team went on to play professional hockey and had good professional hockey careers. And one of my great joys in, in sports was in the 80s and 90s watching those hockey careers play out in the National Hockey League. But there's one in particular for me, one that I want to talk about. Now, a little diversion here. Jackie, my wife, who loves me, obviously, because she gave me a book for Father's Day this year. It's called The Boys of Winter. It was written by a guy named Paul Coffey. What a treat this book was. I read it on vacation. What Coffey does is he retells the story of winning the gold medal in 1980. But he does so by giving a biography of each player and each of the coaches that was involved with the team. So he tells the, the, the narrative of winning the gold, but he also tells all the backstories of every player and every coach. And that one guy for me has always been Ken Morrow. This is a guy that was on that team. He played defense. He was not a scorer. He was a defenseman. And an interesting thing about Ken Morrow is right after they won the gold medal, medal right after the medal award ceremony, you, some of you remember all 20 guys got up on the, on the platform. I don't know how they even squeezed them up there. They said that was the second miracle of the Olympics. All 20 guys got on there where only Mike Ruzioni was supposed to be standing. Right after that happened, Morrow gets on a plane and he goes to the New York Islanders organization, he starts playing for the New York Islanders in the National Hockey League. They owned his rights, and, and he came right in and started playing right away. He was one of their top six defensemen. Later on that year, the New York Islanders in 1980 won 
their first Stanley Cup ever, making Ken Morrow the only player in history to have ever won a gold medal in the Stanley Cup in the same year, which is pretty interesting. So Morrow played for 10 years for the Islanders. They won four Stanley Cups during that time, four championships, were in the finals of another one. And he wasn't He was a part of that great team, but he wasn't a great scorer or a flashy player. He just worked hard and humbly did his job. He was the best defensive defenseman that they had. Nobody could get around him. Nobody could score on this guy. And in 1995, he was inducted into the United States Hockey Hall of Fame. One coach said this of Ken Morrow, give me 20 Ken Morrows and I will always win. That's really high praise. So what's the point? What am I getting at here? In the biography section, of the book that Coffey writes, where he writes about Morrow. I'm now reading about Morrow's character and personality. I always knew I loved him as a player. But I'm reading now about his character and personality. And what I discovered was that at every stage and every level that Morrow played at, whether it was junior hockey, club hockey, college hockey, Olympic hockey, or NHL hockey, he always said this, if this is as far as I go, I'm thrilled and I'm blessed. If it all ends here, I have no complaints. In fact, I have it better than I ever expected. At every stage and at every level, when he's 14 years old playing junior hockey, he said, if this is as far as it goes, I played more than I ever thought I would be able to play. He was content. He was satisfied. Morrow has a rare perspective that we simply don't have in our culture anymore, and, and I would argue not even in our Christian culture, which is sad. And that's the ability to understand that what we want is often right in front of us, and we've already attained it. One of Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, one of his most popular messages was, put a lid on your dreams. And and one of the the things that he would say during that message is, you need to define what your goals are early on, because the problem is, is that so many of us will achieve far more than we ever thought was possible, but because we never defined it in the beginning, we don't appreciate it when we have it. And so suddenly, we're, we're, we're living in the right place, in the right neighborhood, with the right income, and all the right toys, and the right house, and the right 401k. We've got everything in the wheelhouse, and we're walking around miserable, because we never defined what would make us content. We need to be able to do that. And really, it all boils down to this. It's the fact that you and I have a false god problem. And that false god is simply... I want something else, and I want more, and whatever it is, it'll never be enough. But Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. It's been said many times, I say it as well, you never know how much you need Jesus until Jesus is all you have, because he is enough. Also in these verses, there's a binary, and the amazing thing about these verses is that this happens all the time again today. The Bible is still relevant to us today. In fact, it's probably more relevant even to us today. And here it is. It says that the world does not believe Jesus. And in the New Testament, when you see the the word world, it's used in several different ways. But here, in this context, the word world is used to describe people who are opposed to God. So it says Jesus came and the world did not believe. But then it also says that his own people, the Jews, his kin, do not believe. 
And they don't believe no matter what he does. That's the amazing thing. No matter what he does, they don't believe. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. You would think after he turned water to wine in John chapter 2, that'd be the end of the story. That's the end of the gospel. Everybody believed, but it doesn't happen. The Jews didn't believe. The professional religious people didn't believe. In fact, they decided they wanted to kill Jesus, and that's what they did. The Greeks did not believe. Most did not believe. John chapter 11, we're going to get there eventually. John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's an amazing miracle, but the most amazing thing about John chapter 11 is not the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, but a few verses later, after he's raised from the dead, when we find out that many who were there and saw that miracle did not believe. They still did not believe. How is that possible? How many of you have ever said, Jesus would just do a miracle for me, then I would believe? Mm, no, you wouldn't. We have the testimony of the apostles here. It's never been uh, disproven. The resurrection, people who, who are determined to disprove the resurrection often become Christians because they realize that it's true. Jesus says it in John chapter 10, you will not believe because you will not believe. You just won't believe. And that's part of the binary. Because he says, but to those who do believe, those who are born again, they have eternal life. They have eternal life. In a theological sense, we need to understand that not everybody, we're not all God's children. Yes, in a created way, we're all God's children. But in a salvific way, we're not. Paul in the New Testament makes it very clear that without Jesus, we are sons and daughters of wrath. We are children of wrath. Jesus also says the same thing. He says, without me, you are sons and daughters of the devil. Of the devil. Really? Jesus says that? Yes. Come on. Sweet, nice, non-confrontational, tolerant, fluffy-haired Jesus said that? Yeah. And the binary is simple. We either have redemption in Jesus or we don't. There's no in-between. There's no neutral ground. A lot of people like to take solace in the idea that they're neutral on this point. Okay, neutral is out. <laughs> I hate to tell you that. John wrote this entire gospel to address this one singular, essential, life-and-death question. Do you believe? That's why he wrote this entire gospel. And if you're not a Christian and you're struggling with this, don't just blow it off. Come and talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. Verse 13, essentially it's saying God saves sinners. We don't, you and I don't save anyone. We can't talk anybody into it. If God's not working in it, people aren't going to be saved. When I got saved, it was a miracle because God worked in my life. I had rejected him my whole life until I was 27, and then all of a sudden, the Spirit works in my life. I can't take credit for any of that. But we hate that because we want to be in control. We want to be in charge of the results. We're called to the process, but God is the one who's in charge of the results. Tom, again, our founding pastor, um, this was Tom's favorite sentence, and he would diagram it for people. He would say, all right, let's diagram it. God, the subject, saves, that's the predicate, the verb, sinners. That's the direct object. And then he would say, whenever I'm in a sentence, I want to be the direct object because the direct object never has to do anything. It just sits there 
while the action is being done to it. God saves sinners. Our physical birth doesn't get us in. Our ethnicity doesn't get us in. Good works don't get us in. Knowledge does not get us in. Tom used to say all the time, just because you were born in Kansas and drive a pickup, it doesn't mean you're a Christian. We are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. It's a miracle. It's a supernatural occurrence when we come to Christ. And faith precedes becoming a member of the family of God. And it's called a new birth. And we're going to see that more in John chapter 3. We're going to have a couple of messages out of John chapter 3 when we unpack this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that our salvation is a gift from God. And that if we had any part in that gift, it wouldn't be a gift, number one. And it wouldn't be grace, because grace is unmerited favor. And if we did have anything to do with our salvation, it would give us something to boast about ourselves, which would also nullify the grace. He says it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Paul often says the only thing that I boast in is I boast in Christ, because he does all the work. And yet, and yet, if we don't come in faith, the problem is, is that the responsibility for our sin still lies with us. God saves us through his grace, his love, and his mercy, but we still have an accountability to our sin if we do not believe. And I know that's really tough. That's hard. But it's also beautiful because when we do believe, then we know for sure. There's no question. Because it's all God. If my salvation were up to me, I would lose my salvation every day, every hour, probably every minute if it were up to me. It's not me hanging on to God. It's God embracing me and never letting me go. Paul says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's it. It's a done deal. So we no longer have to guess. Um, recently, I was reading another book. The author was telling a story about a young woman who was dying of cancer. Very tragic. And I know that this story was supposed to evoke encouragement and insight. For me, it, it, I just found it sad. But what was happening was, as this woman was dying of cancer, people were bringing her quotes from her favorite Broadway musicals and songs in order to give her hope for what lies ahead. And like I said, I, I just found that sad. I'm not sure where the hope... I mean, does Andrew Lloyd Webber really hold the keys to eternity? Is that what we're saying here? And I want to be really clear about this. Most of you know that I love the musical group Heart, right? For 40 years, can't get enough Heart. It's like the only playlist I have in Spotify. Okay? And I love the show The Office. But if I'm on my dead deathbed, and you guys are bringing me... Ann Wilson songs, heart songs, and you're bringing me quotes from Michael Scott and Dwight Schrute and Jim Halpert, and you're not bringing me the word of God, it's of no use. It's of absolutely no use. I want to hear the word of God. That's where truth and reality and grace and hope and promise and wisdom lie. And then verses 14 through 18 the word became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He 
who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What kind of Dr. Seuss doctrine is going on there? Okay, so here you go. John the Baptist was born first. So Jesus came after John in that sense, but he's saying, but he's really before me because he actually came before me because he's eternal. He was with God in the beginning. The word was with God and the word was God. For from his fullness we have, received, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So why didn't John say the word became human or the word took on humanity? Why flesh? Because the word translated for flesh in their context specifically draws attention to the fact that Jesus, God, enters the full flow of human activity with one exception, and that's sin. He entered into everything that you and I experience, including temptation, yet he was without sin. John wants to make sure that we understand he, while he's fully God, he's also fully man. He's fully a human being. He's 100% God, 100% man. Just like he's 100% grace and 100% truth. He's not 50-50. Jesus defies all of our math. He's full of everything. And this is a truly amazing thing. It's maybe the most amazing thing ever, and I don't say that lightly. Christ is uncreated and eternal. He's God. He's defined. And that Jesus becomes flesh means that he took on the finite, even though he's infinite, and he did that in order to save us. The infinite took on the finite in order to save us. The eternal became transient and temporal, Again, in order to save us, Jesus willingly entered our mess and suffered the worst of our mess in order to fix the mess. That's a powerful thing. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, the great 20th century essayist and educational historian, writes this. We may call the doctrine of the incarnation exhilarating or we may call it devastating. We may call it revolutionary or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, what in the world is worthy of being called exciting? I love the way she writes. And John says that he, Jesus, dwelt among us. He pitched a tent. He built a house and he moved into the neighborhood. Literally, he tabernacled with us. Again, this is language that John is using to point us back to um, God and his people in the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus, where God was with his people in the wilderness, he tabernacled with his people in the wilderness. And it even goes back to before that, where he tabernacled with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they sinned and had to leave the garden. And there's another Moses reference, by the way, in verse 17, that Jesus now comes to fulfill the law. Not destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And he fulfills it because you and I can't. And the beauty of that is that now we don't have to. It's been fulfilled for us. We don't have to worry about fulfilling the law. Jesus fulfilling the law for us is a stupendously great act of grace and love for us. But then you go back to verse 14, and you see that word glory, and that word glory is also a reference back to Exodus, where in Exodus 33, Moses beheld the glory of God. And here we see that Jesus' disciples saw and beheld his glory. That word glory is a great word. Uh, 
it's the word, it's the Greek word doxa, and it literally means weight or weightiness. It can also mean honor, inherent value, and significance, that which evokes praise, but it means something that's weighty. In the 60s, we used to say things like, God is heavy, and we had no idea how theologically correct we were when we would say that. It's the Greek word doxa, from which we get the doxology. And I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'm going to recite it, because we are going to sing it later, I found out, which is good. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And John says he's the only son. Only, in this instance, literally means one of a kind, unique, of the same essence. And verse 15, again, is a full reminder of Jesus' divinity and eternity, and that grace and truth come through Jesus. There's a familiar saying in the Old Testament that's very similar to that, it's God's steadfast love and faithfulness. So we have, in the Old Testament, steadfast love and faithfulness. In the New Testament, we have grace and truth. And then he says, no one has ever seen God. Again, that's another Old Testament reference. And no, no one has ever seen God in his fullness. Moses got a glimpse. And then those who were around in the first century got to see Jesus. But Jesus put on flesh... He put flesh on God for those who did witnesses and, uh, witnesses and then those of us who have received that witness, that testimony from them. And again, a contextual and cultural understanding, this is amazing because the people in Jesus' time, and this may be one reason why they had a hard time believing in Jesus, they believed that God could always bless a human being, but they never thought that God would come as a human being. That was far beyond their scope. But God had to enter our situation as a human in order to be able to be the proper sacrifice to save us. So you consider this passage. Where's the gospel in this? Well, the gospel is in every, thir- every verse of these 13 verses, but specifically, I want to go back to verses 9 through 13 for just a minute. Jesus has not only saved us, he fulfills the law for us, and he gives us grace, but again, he reveals to us who he is. He reveals to us who he is through his teaching, through his life, through his incarnation, through his miracles. He reveals to us exactly who he is. He's God come in the flesh. Our problem is that we live in a culture, and here I'm talking specifically about the church culture, unfortunately. We live in a culture that is in love with asking this question, who is Jesus to you? In other words, you get to define who Jesus is. Here's what we need to know, that when we begin to define who Jesus is, when we define who God is, the question, who is Jesus to you, is is actually an invitation to idolatry and self-worship, because we're in charge at that point. Whereas the question, how has Jesus revealed himself, is an invitation to truth and grace. That's where we should be going. We shouldn't be asking, who is Jesus to us? We should be asking, how has Jesus revealed himself? Who is Jesus, according to Jesus? So which is it? Is Jesus who he said he is? Or is he someone of your own construction, because you've constructed him, 
who makes you comfortable with your sin. Because that's what we do. It's the great Martin Luther quote. God created us in his image and we've been returning the favor ever since. John calls us. Jesus calls us. To come to and know the truth of who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Lord God, again, we thank you for your word and its truth. And uh, we just ask that you would give us the, the insight, the wisdom, and the courage to embrace who you really are through your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that your grace would be evident, your wisdom would be evident during these times where we're just struggling with so many things. We're struggling with this pandemic. We're struggling with with the civil unrest, we're struggling with great division. Not only uh, division in the public square and in the public sphere, but division in the church. And I pray that your grace would reign supreme. That in Christ we have everything we need. God, that there can be unity there. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to come to the Lord's table now again that last night before Jesus was betrayed he he's with his best friends and he takes the bread he does something brand new for them he breaks the bread and he says this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me and then he after they'd eaten the bread he takes the cup and he says this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for your sin so that you can be forgiven so that your sin is atoned for do this in remembrance of me and as I say every week, when we, when we take these elements, it's a confession and a celebration. It's also a testimony of who we're aligning our lives with. And so we do this uh, with a great deal of reverence, but with also a glad and thankful heart. So as we do that here, or you do it at home, I pray that you would be lifted up and encouraged as we do this. And remember the words of Paul. He tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again.
Thank you for worshiping. As our benediction for today, we're going to sing the doxology together. And after we sing that doxology, I would invite you to uh, exit out these doors here to the left uh, so that we'll be able to clean the room. And so uh, thank you for being here to worship together. It's great to be in the same room worshiping our God. Let's sing this doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here Arcadia, go and live all of life, all for Jesus.